0: sometimes living in a very values-led way can mean that you are challenged. Um, you, you, you know, you were talking about the, the very salient example of, of Greta earlier. We will come across confrontation. If we don't, then we're, we're kind of not in the right space because the status quo isn't values-led. And, and so, you know, let's, let's bring on that challenge. Hello
1: and welcome to the Force of Nature podcast with me, Clover Hogan. Today's episode is with Dr. Ellie Hansen, a clinical psychologist who applies lessons from the way we think and feel to some of society's messiest problems, from childhood abuse to trauma, and more recently, the climate crisis. Ellie does not shy away from hard questions. In this conversation, we ask, what do you stand for? Who do you stand for? And who are you willing to stand up against in the fight for what's right? Let us know how you answer those questions after the pod. In the meantime, sit back and enjoy. We continue to perpetuate a mode of activism and responsibility that is broken and that does not work.
0: The society that's been created is one that doesn't valued. Everybody doesn't value you if you're different. The status quo isn't values-led, and, and so let's bring on that challenge. I have a whole new understanding of the strength of a human. I want
1: to be able to look back at my life and think, I did something which actually changed the world and made a difference. Welcome to the Force of Nature podcast with your host, Clover Hogan. Ellie, thank you so much for joining me here today on the podcast. Um, We are going to dive straight in. Um, You are a clinical psychologist and more recently your focus has really pivoted to um, the psychology around climate change and perhaps how we're responding in the face of this crisis. Um, Could you tell me a little bit about, I mean, for one, how you first came into the world of psychology and then what catalyzed this interest of psychology through the lens of climate?
0: Yeah. So, um, I've always had a fascination in psychology, um... Having said that, I remember um, as a teenager having to take a day off school to decide between psychology and social social anthropology at uni um, because I've always had that interest in the global um, and how culture affects who we become. Um, But yes, so psychology has been a big part of my life for um, a very long time um, and I've always been interested in using it to... Um, change the world. I've always believed that knowing ourselves better surely is a good thing for bringing about the changes that we do need to achieve. And
1: you spoke to doing a lot of work in in the realm of trauma and uh, how to navigate some of the harm that perhaps we've experienced in in our own lives Mm -hmm. and and find new ways for new pathways. Could you speak a little bit to the relationship between trauma and climate?
0: I think, you know, we're used to thinking about trauma um, as a very personal thing um, and experiencing something that has overwhelmed us um, in a very immediate way. But actually, we really need to expand that term um, and think of it much more collectively. We can be traumatised by what we see other people going through by what we see animals going through Um, and it's not just a present or past thing, it's a future thing Um, and there's something about maybe existential trauma um, and looking ahead and seeing trauma that's going to come our way and yeah so I I suppose I'm in favour of really expanding that term and thinking about it beyond the individual and an individual experience. And then, you know, if we're thinking about climate change, we're obviously fundamentally talking about trauma. We're talking about um, disasters, fires, droughts, et cetera, befalling people. Um, so traumas that interact with nature, but we're also going to be talking about um, interpersonal traumas, people's in conflict with one another because of scarce resources um, and all of that. And, and they maybe they each have a different impact, but fundamentally, is climate change fundamentally about trauma? Mm,
1: interesting. <laughs> both, yes. both as uh, trauma as a consequence, but I think also this mm. idea of the climate crisis having come about because of societal trauma potentially. And you look to many people in positions of power who seem to have this sort of cognitive dissonance between, you know, their actions and and the impact on wider society and the planet and whether much of that stems from a place of
0: trauma also. Um, Yes. And I think one thing that we can certainly say is that um, trauma and denial are are very closely related. Um, Judith Herman, who is one of the great theorists around um, childhood trauma, talks about the central dialectic to trauma being the will to proclaim and the will to deny. Um, And, you know, for me, having worked across the kind of two, if we call them two issues, fundamentally, they boil down to a very similar thing, which is, Um, A huge threat, a huge problem, huge suffering, and then um, many various attempts to deny it, minimize it, distance from it. Um, And I'm fascinated by that kind of societal psychology and how we can maybe challenge it.
1: Mm. And as we see more and more young people experiencing these feelings of what have been termed eco-anxiety, ecophobia feelings of powerlessness in the face of cataclysmic environmental change Um, what is your hope with how that trauma can perhaps be alleviated be avoided Mm. um, on a personal level but also speaking to wider society and and touching on this really interesting point Mm. that you made of of trauma experienced on behalf of the other, Mm. um, which I think many young people are exhibiting through the outrage um, Mm. and anger with which they're now communicating
0: about this crisis. Yeah. And I think they have a right to feel anger. I mean, as you're saying that, I'm thinking about my seven-year-old daughter who I was talking to her about climate change earlier this week. And she said that she, you know, she said, "I, I feel really annoyed because older people, it's their fault. And we as children are going to, um, you know, be affected by what what they've done. And I said, yes, you're absolutely right. And she said, and I mean, you, mummy, you're <laughs> one of those older people. <laughs> we need to come back to why we have emotions. Mm. Fundamentally, we have them to motivate us. If we had didn't have emotions, we wouldn't do anything. So it's a great sign to be feeling, um, and that's where we need to begin. And I think it's brilliant that that we are all starting to feel these things more and maybe young people in particular the next step as you're saying is is what do we do with those feelings and we need to be thinking about how can we harness them and channel them into um change if we have fear just by itself and we're in a very scared and frightened place then um that can quickly lead to a fatalism and a nihilism and and a giving up you know i i'm helpless in the face of my fear. Mm. Um, So we do need hope. We need hope to come alongside fear as as its friend. Um, And again, we don't want hope by by herself because hope by itself could spark complacency, you know, and a a kind of um, ill-judged sense of optimism. So again, we need alongside those emotions, um, self-efficacy, confidence, a sense of I can, I can act on these things to make the world a better place. And I should add to that, we can, you know, let's move beyond the individual, um, by ourselves. We, we can't do much, but together we can do something absolutely incredible. And it's seeing ourselves as part of that broader whole. And
1: how do you propose we begin down that particular path because touching on this concept Mm. of and and theme of hope, I I feel is hugely important. Um, I was at uh, an exhibition recently and it it had this quote on the wall in in the context of climate. And it said that, you know, both despair and optimism on either end of the spectrum Mm. allow you to kind of take an observer's role and not engage with the issue. They allow you to really sit on the sidelines, whereas hope is that place in the messy middle where you're able to hold the tension between both confronting how we all have been complicit in creating these problems while also entertaining another future that is possible, that is perhaps very difficult to imagine from where we stand today but absolutely the direct direction in which we must
0: begin Mm. to travel I love everything that you just said there Clover and, and I think that is a really good starting point um actually simply the philosophy of hope um because it's it's something that's somewhat intangible and we don't talk much about it um I really love Rebecca Solnit's book, Hope in the Dark, which I'd highly recommend because it really does articulate um, and expand upon everything that you've just said there. That um hope as a as an agentic emotion, um and challenging this sense that the future's already mapped out. The future hasn't happened and it can go any which way. It's it's unknowable, um, it's uncertain, and what happens depends on what we do. I think philosophy is an absolutely key subject for schools to be teaching. Um, It's the bedrock. It's the starting point. Um, And upon that bedrock, young people are then a good place to kind of navigate um, and act from a place of what their values are and what their vision of the world is. And
1: with values, Mm. this is a really key word because Mm. values as a concept have sort of been tokenized and also spoken of to date in the context of these kind of things that float out there in this weird miasma, which we can kind of adopt. And if you think about them being co-opted in organisations, you often have this big kind of survey, which is what do we stand for? And it, it all feels very superficial and artificial. I would love to hear you expand more on that role of values and and perhaps how we can reintroduce them and, and uncover their importance and also reintroduce them um, to young individuals uh, who perhaps don't necessarily have those philosophies or are looking for that kind of guidance and moral guidance. Yes,
0: yes. No, um, this is an absolute passion of mine. (laughs) I think the starting point really is, is again, kind of looking at society as it's currently structured, um, that we are all bombarded by invitations to place value in certain places. And I'm going to Um, summarise those invitations as kind of invitations to extrinsic values. So placing value on our looks, on our wealth, um, on um, kind of being better, um, being better than others, status, kudos, cool. Across all of this, we're seeing corporations who are making money from inviting us all, including young people, to place value on things that are fundamentally not in their best interests, not in the best interests of the people that they relate to, and usually not in the best interests of the planet as well. Um, and yet, if we actually look at the research on values, we find that most people, that's not where they're placing most of their value. Um, really, most people have these kind of guiding north stars, these. Um, intrinsic values as as psychologists would term them Um, personal growth um, spirituality relationships with nature good good relationships with each other um, helping other people a sense of community actually that's who we are as humans we as humans we are cooperative people that care about one another that's our baseline Um, and yet current society consumerism um, brings out the worst in us in, in short Um, And that's not helping the planet. So we need to think about, well, how can we unhook from some of that stuff? And yet I know that, you
1: know, growing up, whether it was through Mm. my early education or or other kind of influences, constantly being told this story embedded in Darwinistic kind of (laughs) views of how we came to evolve, the fact that we are inherently um, kind of selfish and... Uh, egotistical and it's the survival of the fittest mm. mentality with which we are raised which also then yes. becomes a sort of bandwagon for this story around climate which mm. is that the reason we're here isn't you know for these complex systems um but because we're
0: yes. bad people yes I, I completely challenge that narrative um that idea of survival of the fittest as an individual survival Um, yes survival of the fittest survival of the fittest social group and that means altruism connectedness community and if you look at the evolution of humanity what we find is that obviously we've come from being apes well I would subscribe to an evolutionary standpoint (laughs) Um, and if you look at ape psychology There is hierarchy and dominance, but then we move to become hunter-gatherers and humans. And 90 to 95% of human history, we have been hunter-gatherers. And if you look at hunter-gatherer societies, they were very cooperative and had very robust mechanisms for ejecting um, dominant or narcissistic behavior, um, attempts to, to, to rule or set up hierarchies, that would be robustly challenged and dealt with. Um, So at the moment, if we look at modern society, are we actually looking at a bit of a throwback to our monkey days? Um, And we need to reclaim what makes us uniquely human, Mm -hmm. which is being able to stand up for each other and and work for the interests of the group rather than the individual. I prefer that story. (laughs) Um, and, yeah, and fundamentally, we have these two mental sets within us. We can clip into a hierarchical hierarchical um model of society and look to kind of climb that la- ladder and be better than others, or we can clip into um the sense of cooperation and working together and and friendship and all and all of that. I'd really recommend the book, The Inner Level, by Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett on this that go into it in a lot more depth. One of the things that I've been
1: most surprised to hear in in the classroom, and there are certainly lots of young people who have a real sense of clarity and determination, but many who still entertain this story that the future is something happening to them and not something that they have control over. And I don't think we give young people enough credit based on just how much unpriming they're having to do and how much they are having to forge their own stories when there are so many influences converging on them um, whether yes. it is a standardized education system that kind of teaches them to become this set of averages and yes. to inherently be very competitive against their peers and their, their classmates or it is You know, this very consumer led culture on social media, uh, the rose tinted window through which we present ourselves to the world, this constant, you know, contrast and comparison. Um, And so drawing back to this Mm -hmm. idea of of values and and reinstating those values, um,
0: where would you suggest that we begin? Um, I think a multitude of ways, like let's have dedicated space within education To talk about these things and to invite young people to be really thinking about what makes them tick and what's important to them. Um, But also we can do that beyond those specific lessons. Um, I'm a big fan of autonomy, supportive education more generally. So education that is always inviting young people to think about um, what do they think, what's their view and digging deep into themselves and also other people giving permission to have conversations that we don't usually have to have conversations about the big things in life, not just the small things. Um, you know, people talk about, well, I just don't have, when am I going to, where am I going to go and talk about values or, or about the meaning of life or about death? You know, these are things that we should be talking about the whole time, in my opinion.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And it, it, it culturally, I find it fascinating because drawing on this topic of death for example Mm. um growing up in a place like Bali death was I think in in many ways because of the philosophy and religion of reincarnation it was in many ways something to be celebrated Mm. and I, I always found this dramatic contrast between the funerals that you know, I attended as a child in Australia where, you know, everyone is very macabre and they're wearing black and it's it's very much engulfed in grief and contained grief, yes. whereas in Bali, we have these cremation ceremonies um, that are almost like these street festivals um, in which, you know, you're celebrating that person's life and and all yes. of the great things that they brought into this world and the best parts of themselves and, and the passing on to another kind of dimension or, or whatever you choose to believe. Yes. Um, and I think about it in, in kind of British society as well. And it's often you, you know, you have kind of a, a tight noose around your neck in many ways mm. um, about how how you are able to express those those feelings and, and create the space for them and just release those emotions. And I've, yes. a, a lot of people I've spoken to about Greta, especially people in the corporate space, yes. find it very confronting to see a young girl Mm. angry and passionate Mm. and unleashing this tsunami of emotion. Um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts
0: on on why that is such a trigger for adults. Yes. And I think coming back to this theme of denial, um, and there are so many different ways in which people have denied that we've all denied um, the, the change, you know, climate change and, and what that's going to bring for us as humanity as well as for, for everybody else. This also relates to the psychology of just world, which I find really interesting, where we are all motivated to believe that the world is a more or less fair place. Um, and there's quite a lot of research showing that's, that that can be an adaptive illusion for us on an individual level um, to think that the world that we live in, particularly our small world, you know, if you do good, good will happen to you. And if you do the wrong thing, then you'll be punished. Karma, yeah. Yes, exactly, karma. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, if you hold on to that view, then, then that can um, help you feel safer in the world and help you invest in, in work, in hard work, etc. Um, but the problem is, is that it's obviously not true. And uh, when people come across evidence that it's not true, that can be experienced as very threatening. Um, and so they can either either respond to that threat by thinking, right, I'm going to do something about the fact that the world's not a fair place. I'm going to act. I'm going to join forces with others and, and try and make it a better place. Or I can do something cognitive. I can reframe the situation. So actually, um, you're wrong. The world is still fair. Um, those victims have actually done something to kind of deserve what happened to them. So the world's still fair. Or that problem's happening so far away from me, my, my little world is still fair. So there's so many different things that humans do to cognitively um, reframe it so that it still feels fair. Now, the irony there is that the more cognitive acrobatics they're doing, the, the more unjust the world becomes. Mm. I think everything that you were saying there about death is so thought-provoking and I really think that you're onto something there about western society's approach to death and maybe that playing a part in in the problems that we've currently got that we tend to avoid death Um, as you were saying there it's it's a grief-stricken thing Um, it's a horror and therefore we avoid it and we don't talk about it and we don't think about it and um, there's a fascinating theory in psychology terror management theory which looks at all of the ways in which we try and um maneuver away death very subconsciously. I would argue that being conscious of death can be is the better way to go and um actually, if you have your own death in mind that really focuses your attention on life on um what life is about and and using your life um, to act in line with your values fundamentally. Um, I find it a really grounding um, thing to do to be thinking about death and how that then affects my life right here, right now.
1: And I feel that that's why many young people taking to the streets and, and saying we could quite potentially be the last generation mm. to experience many of nature's wonders yes. is such a powerful story and provocation because it is with that kind of absurdity yes. that we're able to adopt this idea of find something you would die for and just get on and live for it you know yes. and commit your commit your life to that to that legacy piece and then the kind of the absurdity of the nine to five and the complacency and just ticking mm. along and, and ticking arbitrary boxes and following particular pursuits yes. which have really been fed to you and haven't emanated from within, all of that falls away. Totally. And you're able to distill
0: down to that core. Yes, yes. and I, I think you're, you've hit the nail on the head there. And actually it's win-win because living the nine to five consumerist um you know, I work hard, I play hard, and by play hard, I mean just fill myself with entertainment stuff that 's actually not fundamentally satisfying, and that 's not good for our vitality and well being anyway so um really working out what our values are and what what i what i 'm gonna die for is best for those just social justice causes, but it 's also best for ourselves anyway and uh, I think it was Martin Luther King who said um no one really knows why they're alive until they know what they die for. And I think that that's exactly what you're talking about there, Clover. You know, what is this life about? And, um, you know, for me, it's about contributing to that greater good and being a, a, a drop in that ocean. And we don't know whether we're going to be able to save the world. Um we have hope, but, but we don't know. But what we can do is we can do our best and, and die trying. And, and again, another quote I come back to in difficult moments is um, a part of a poem attributed to Mother Teresa where she says, um, what you spend years building may be destroyed overnight, build anyway. And that never fails to just help me keep on going.
1: That's it and that's what creates the motivation to just keep getting out of bed every morning because something that I've observed as well to do with this kind of relationship between individual and institution is that many young Mm. people feel this sense of helplessness or powerlessness in the wake of protest when those demands are not met. And I think with that, whatever action we decide to pursue, we need to go into it completely unshackled from expectation or unshackled from outcome because it's just the right thing to do Yes, and having the confidence to just say, this is right and this is wrong and and I'm going to die trying. Then we're able to kind of uh, break that uh, dependency Mm. and relationship with those perceived structures of power. We're not doing it to persuade that specific person if it does great but if it doesn't then we're going to circumnavigate it we're going to try another way yes and you you just have that that fire and determination to keep going and that grit to keep going even when the going gets so hard and it speaks to that importance of forging those values in the fire and forging those values in the face of adversity
0: yes yes absolutely and you know i think we we've both had experiences where um our values have been questioned um or we're we're close to people who have very much bought into that consumerist status driven lifestyle um and i found that really helpful because it's really helped me refine and dig deep and think what do i value and and am i willing to commit to those values at, at all costs all that we have is our soul and we can give our soul and and contribute to being a part of the universe. And, and that's all that we can really do in the end. Um, and for me, that, that is a life worth living.
1: And yeah, so you touched on something that we we spoke about earlier, um, which is our values actually being strengthened in the face of adversity. And I think my dad wouldn't mind me sharing this story, but you know, yes. my first kind of active protest, I think at about the age of 11 or 12, after I decided that I wanted to become an environmentalist, um, was to become a vegetarian and I mean for most people this perhaps wouldn't rock the boat too much but in the mm-hmm. context of having a dad who is not only French but also a chef um, that was a sort of rejection of everything that he stood for mm. and, and culture and I, I mean we see it with vegetarianism more broadly it, it's such a deeply personal thing for so many people what they eat and how that is a reflection of lifestyle and culture that when we bring it into question it can be super confronting. And in this context with my family, um, me making that decision was really, really confrontational and it was very painful at times. Um, But as I was reflecting to you earlier, it is in fact what strengthen that conviction uh, (laughs) and forced me to become that much more kind of like belligerent and really stand by it to an extent that perhaps I wouldn't have. Um, And, you know, maybe I wouldn't be here, you know, 10 years later still as an ardent vegetarianism and animal rights activist and and whatnot. Um, And yeah, so I'm curious to hear your thoughts on kind of the role of adversity Mm. in strengthening those systems of value, but also to what extent you feel on an individual level, we are malleable and flexible and the role of the collective values within which we immerse ourselves. because. I've always liked to think that I'm very independent and headstrong, but I've reflected on recently how the people I associate myself with have an impact on those values yes. and what I care about in my own life and how that impacts this kind of wider mission. Um, so how do you feel we're able to dance those two dancers? Um, and at what point do we need to kind of protect ourselves and, and, and draw it back to the the inner
0: and, and reflect on those values? Sometimes, Living in a very values led way um, can mean that you are challenged um, you, you, you know you were talking about the, the very salient example of, of Greta earlier. Um, we will come across confrontation um, if we don 't then we 're kind of not in the right space because the status quo isn 't values led and, and so um, you know let 's let 's bring on that challenge and and, and grow from it. In parallel with that, um, we need to be amongst a community. This isn't something to be doing alone, in in my opinion. We need our allies, our friends, um, our encouragements, and and to take that encouragement and solidarity from one another. So I think there is that dance partly coming back to the inner, but then thinking, well, this is who I am. This is what I value. So how can I, where are my friends um, to help me stay true to these things? Um, And that can be a really good basis from which to then have those discussions with others who are thinking differently i think we can be we should be asking for a a mutual platform of respect and openness that both parties have an openness to hearing what the other person is saying. And if you are going into a discussion and you're getting very strong signals that that person is just using what you're saying to further their own agenda and is not having an openness, then I think we have every right to to draw those conversations to a close.
1: Definitely. And it, mm. it draws back to this kind of point around designing systems mm. in which we can show up as our best selves, quote unquote. Yes. It's something that I've thought a lot yes. about in in regard to what I have sometimes called the tokenism of activism in the 21st mm. century. And I don't think there is any right or wrong answer to this, but you know, whether buying the reasonable coffee cup or turning off the lights when we leave a room or making the monthly donation, whether that merely swathes us in the self-assurance that we've done our bit or whether it actually mm serves as a driver to reinforce positive value systems around our impact and taking responsibility for that impact. Um, I'm curious to hear your thinking on this and perhaps in the context of the work you've done uh, looking at school systems and and how we design classrooms to begin to inculcate those values at an early age.
0: There is a dilemma around those small actions and whether they sometimes have that inadvertent consequence of complacency and people feeling, well, I've done my bit. Great. Um, and, and that would be a very dangerous consequence actually. Um, so I'm all for those small actions and actually, like you said, they can, we can rub off on each other and create new norms because if we don't do those small things, then we're we're still doing something and we're communicating the opposite we're communicating that we don't really care about the environment even if we say that we do so i think it's important that we start with the small things or not even start but they're they're part of the picture but they're not the whole picture and i and i think this does come back down to uh, a values based education again um and beyond education just just talking about it wherever we can um that that if we are driven by those what what are called intrinsic values or or we might talk about self-transcendent values I I care about more than just myself um, then that then we are not going to stop with the reusable coffee cup we are going to keep on looking Um, and then we each have a duty maybe in the opportunities that we each have to to be looking to give other people opportunities some recent research is showing that 85 percent of young people want to have more opportunities to make Positive change, so we can be thinking about not just what we can do, but also what opportunities can we offer one another. Coming back to your question about about schools, for me again, this is not just about um, a specific set of lessons on values or on climate change. Um, It's about looking at it across the curriculum, but also that whole school approach that the whole that there are the whole school is practicing these not just pro-environmental behaviour, but values are what we should be thinking about and what should be driving us. And something really
1: interesting that you mentioned was how perhaps these transcendental values or environmentally focused values have somehow been positioned in contradiction with maybe Mm. Nationalistic values or loyalty to the family. How do we begin to rebridge yes. between those two hemispheres? Because, at least if you look at it on a political level, I mm. think of conservatism in America and how, you know, Republicans were. In fact, the original environmental stewards. Yes. Um, you know, I- implementing national parks and we, as problematic as, as that was in regards to some indigenous rights, at least the the preservation of natural spaces and yes. how that has since, you know, completely morphed into something that's quite the opposite. So how how can we realign these and create those Mm. sort of universally guiding principles and Mm. invite everyone from every corner, every political spectrum, the diversity of background to explore
0: these set of values? I'm really... Um, influenced by another book I'd recommend, um, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Disagree About Politics and Religion by Jonathan Haidt. Um, he he looks at moral values as, as different taste buds. Um, and there's a lot of research done looking at how conservative voters um, would just have, you know, certain taste buds that are more sensitized than Liberal or left-wing voters, um, but they're all moral values. Like you say, um, for conservatives, that the, they will tend to be stronger on values around preservation, um, family loyalty, um, this idea of sanctity um, and tradition. And whereas liberals would tend to be more um, focusing on things like equality and fairness. Now, all of those values are. Huge, can be huge driving forces in protecting our planet. And I think that we need to be thinking about all of those values and not just saying this is all about um, equality and fairness, but it's about all of these different parts to who we are and um, narrating the environmental cause with due attention to those different driving forces that we each might have. And I, I think this also relates to how, like you said, kind of republicanism is in a very different place now. And I, I would feel that that is partly because it's been co-opted by neoliberalism and kind of free market thinking and libertarianism, which is quite a minority view, this idea that the only thing that matters is individual freedom. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of conservatives. and and republicanism has been co-opted by actually what is a minority view. And maybe there's something for the conservatives about reclaiming those things that did initially drive them around tradition, loyalty, sanctity, preservation in the work that we do at Force of Nature, we kind of play with this model
1: that, or this theory, I suppose, that at the junction of passion and pain comes purpose. So, you know, passion Mm. being how you just show up, where you're in your flow, where you like to play, and then pain being this problem that Mm. you want to see solved in the world. Um, And when you bring these two things together, that's where you can really yes. create an impact. I'm curious to know how you think we can see the invitation before us mm. and not to be so grandiose as to say that you know climate might be our redemption, but mm. how we can become more full, I won't say better, mm. but more full versions
0: of ourselves. Um, I love your model of where passion meets pain is purpose. And I think that that is a very... The, the psychological theory and research would really support that that um there is pain um and but we can go to the pain when we have passion, and for me, that would be some a, a real um principle for me that that we can face uh whatever pain it is as long as we have um that passion and that um chance and opportunity which often we are the ones making for ourselves to make change. Where would you like to see your work have the biggest impact? I would just be thrilled to contribute to um bringing about a society which where intrinsic and self-transcendent values are center stage. Finding what you die for isn't just good for the social cause isn 't just good for the planet for the climate it 's actually good for you as well and really, when I come back to climate change and, and what do we want to achieve when we address that let's let 's have a big ambition that it's because actually if we look at it and i come I say this coming from having worked on other social justice issues society isn 't working at the moment, even if climate change was not happening we 've got a problem we 've got Fundamentally, the powerful oppressing those with less power. We've got huge amounts of human suffering and abuse and relationship problems and poverty and inequality and mental health problems. So maybe climate change is is the crisis that we need to stand up to, that we need to, um, you know, rise up to. And in so doing, we can actually tackle This whole broad range of social problems and this is our opportunity to reconfigure um, society and make it better for everybody.
1: Thanks for listening to this Force of Nature podcast with Dr. Ellie Hansen. You can learn more about Ellie's work in the show notes. We want to hear your questions, aha moments, musings, and of course, we want to know what you plan to live for ahead of our next episode, when you'll be hearing from Pam Warhurst on how to grow a grassroots movement from your own backyard. Force of Nature is edited by Kasra Faruizia, produced by James Bishop of One Fine Play, and would not be as good as it is without the wisdom of my mum, Janet Hogan. You can find me at Clover Hogan on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and stay in the loop with Force of Nature on all the same channels at forceofnature.xyz, including TikTok. Don't forget to subscribe and go check out our videos on YouTube. See you next time.